Today's video was recorded on April 4th, 2023. Today's lesson continues in our series on God's appointed feasts, or as we might call them, the biblical holidays. But today's topic is Jesus's birthday. And the one thing that's clear to scholars is that Jesus' birth was not December 25th, and that the Bible is completely silent on us celebrating his birth. But are there clues perhaps in scripture pointing us to at least the time of year that Jesus would have been born? And the answer to that is yes. Now what's important about this is that when we consider how essential the biblical holidays are to God, to his relationship with his people, and to the plan of redemption, would it not make some sense then that Jesus' birth into the world would coincide with one of these holidays? And I think the answer to that is absolutely yes. So join us today. We're going to explore a trail of clues left behind in the Gospel of Luke that are going to point us to a time of the year that Jesus was likely born. And then when we look at the holiday that's happening around that time of year, then it becomes significant within the context of the biblical holidays. So we hope you enjoyed today's lesson today on Jesus' birth and how it would coincide with the biblical holidays and God's plan of redemption. So Jesus' birthday, most scholars, I think the majority these days, put it in the fall. And in my opinion, it's going to be the Feast of Tabernacles. So that's what we just did last week. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us that, so we have to remember the whole time we're doing this that the Bible never says anything about it. And there's continued speculation uh, amongst different people and throughout history, different groups have tried to figure it out. We'll talk about why we came to December 25th, but it's just important to remember we're speculating. This is nothing to get hung up on. You know, whether you get the proper birthday or not has nothing to do with your salvation or relationship with God. If it was absolutely required for salvation, the Bible would have made it plain, but it doesn't. So this is just going to be an exercise, I think. Let me go to the next slide here, because this is the 11th now in our series on God's appointed feast. And one thing, this was, this was on the very first lesson, so 10 lessons ago, the word appointed, God's appointed feast. It's a word God is making an appointment. And he wants to meet his people at a specific time. And I think if you paid attention through your the annual cycle every year of these holidays, I think you would see something unfolding in them because that's God's promise. I want to meet you. Recently somebody said, "Oh, what a burden these holidays must have been. And I thought, well, is it a burden to celebrate Christmas? Is it a burden to go to Easter? No, we don't think of those as burdens. And the Jewish people don't see them as a burden. It's a time to meet God. And I hope you can see all of these festivals, how coordinated God is and what Jesus is doing in every single one of these festivals to help us understand something about the plan of redemption. So these holidays are central to God and the life of God's people. And I think if God places that much importance on holidays and the appointed feasts, then 
I don't think Jesus would be born at a random date in December. It just doesn't seem likely. God is too coordinated in ways that we can't understand. And I think that there's more going on, and I'll show you, I think, two things tonight with both Jesus and John the Baptist that have to do with these holidays and the importance of these holidays in God's plan of redemption. Okay, that said, let me, let's talk about this picture in the background here. So this photo is somewhere a little bit north of Jericho in the Rift Valley. So we're below sea level, way below sea level. Now it happens to be January, so it's not stifling hot like it would be in the summer. And this is a shepherd leading his flock. And the reason that I chose this as a background picture is because we're going to talk about something in the book of Luke, and this is one way that scholars identify when Jesus would have been born, is that Luke tells us there were shepherds living in the fields. That's one of our anchor points. Because the shepherds only live in the fields a certain time of year. This, what you're looking at, is, are not the fields. This is the wilderness. The Judean wilderness, not the fields. And this is where the shepherds normally live. So uh, it's a great example of how important it is to understand the land of Israel, particularly around Jerusalem, but even in Galilee. And then not only the land, but the customs of the farmers, the shepherds that lived in that land, because the Bible is so intimately connected to the land of Israel. Uh, there's an expression that the land of Israel is called the fifth gospel. So we have four written gospels. The land is the fifth one. You understand the book. You understand the Bible by experiencing the land, by understanding the land and the customs, because they, the, the Bible writers never talk about that. And so when you can do something like understand how the shepherds migrate throughout the year, then something like fields, and you recognize, oh, that's different than wilderness, even though they're right next to each other, to the first century mind, aha. So Luke's source is making sure he understands the difference between these. Doctor, his name is Paul Wright, Dr. Paul Wright. He's the past president of Jerusalem University College in Jerusalem. And so when I was over there studying, he would say to the students, we're going to listen to the Bible with our feet. And that's exactly what you do. You go out to experience the land. And by seeing the land, you understand the weather patterns, the migration patterns, the growing patterns. You get a deeper sense of what's going on with the text. So, God willing, we'll be able to do this. Now, right off the bat, if you could look close enough at that picture, and maybe it's not that big on the zoom screen, you notice something about this flock. The goats are all out in front of the shepherd, and the sheep are behind. Now, there's your metaphor, right? The sheep and the goats travel in the same flocks, or in the same flock, but the goats go their own way. So Jesus says, I will separate the sheep from the goats. Because the goats do everything on their own, and the sheep don't. The sheep follow the shepherd. There's the biblical metaphor. And we're just seeing it with some random... Now, this is a Bedouin shepherd, modern-day Bedouin shepherd in Israel. I'll show you some pictures of them later. 
Okay, so really important because when we come to this, how do we how do we get to Jesus's birthday in at the Feast of Tabernacles? It's all coming out of culture and the land and the customs that surround Jerusalem and Bethlehem. Okay, uh, point number one on your sheet. So there's no doubt that the celebration of the birthday of a god, birthdays in general, it has its roots in pagan religions of the East, particularly Egyptian, but around the Mediterranean world. The Bible does not emphasize people's birthdays at all, and especially you would never say, obviously, since God is eternal, he doesn't have a birthday. But in the pagan world, they're celebrating the birthdays of their gods. When this god man was was uh, somehow born into the into creation, that was a big thing within the, with the pagans. Interestingly enough, two times in the Bible, there's mention of birthdays. Somebody is celebrating a birthday. Both times we hear it, it's a pagan. So the first time is Genesis. It's Genesis in chapter 40, and we're not going to turn there, but it's Pharaoh's birthday, and he's going to celebrate. The second time is the New Testament. Herod Antipas, he's going to celebrate his birthday. I have to look into this more. It's very strange. The strange thing about both of those birthdays is someone loses a head. Now, that's weird. If two times birthday celebrations are mentioned in the Bible, the first time Pharaoh, it was his baker, his baker who lost his head, he was killed. And then the second time is John the Baptist at the birthday party uh, for Antipas. And then he beheads John the Baptist. That's weird. If two times in the Bible, they're both Gentiles and both times somebody loses a head. So I have to look into that. I don't know what that means, but if you see something like that in the Bible where something only happens twice, that's where you go looking because God's got something in there. So anyways, the Bible places zero emphasis on a birthday. And again, if they wanted us to, to really, if it was really that important to know Jesus's birthday, uh, they would have told us. Now, it seems that in the ancient world, it wasn't the birthday of the physical pharaoh or the, the physical birth of the pharaoh or the physical birth of a king, but it's, it's the day the pharaoh takes on godlike status. The pharaoh becomes a god, and so we'll see that later. It's a moment of transformation when, the, when someone becomes Caesar and then is suddenly Mithras, the god incarnate. Now that becomes your birthday that you celebrate for the Caesar. I'll show you that in a minute. So this is one problem, I think, some people have with, um, with the whole birthday issues, you just don't see it in the Bible. Okay, now, second, then how do we get December 25th? How do we arrive at that date? Now, one thing that everybody notes, all scholars note, is that most cultures have a celebration that is somewhere around the winter solstice, the shortest day of the year. And then the sun that looked like it was dying begins to rise again. And so there's plenty of celebrations that we know about. If any culture had a sun god, and they all did, then they would celebrate the rebirth of the sun. And the Romans, we know this, the Romans had a celebration of whatever sun god it was, and then they called it Sol Invictus. So Sol Invictus, 
this is a it's a silver disc showing Sol Invictus. Now, it's not easy to see on that, but this is likely not only is it Sol Invictus, Sol Invictus is the unconquerable sun. What you can't see is on the left and on the right of that person there is a lamb and a bull. And that, without a doubt, is representing the god Mithras. Mithras was a god that was worshipped by the soldiers. And they would, the soldiers would say that their Caesar was Mithras incarnate. And that symbolism right there is right out of Mithras is the number one competitor to Christianity in the time of the early church. So, Sol Invictus, it's that the sun can't be conquered. That was a big Roman thing. So, next on your sheet, under number two, is we come to a guy, Constantine Chlorus. Now, this is the father of Constantine the Great. Constantine Chlorus lived 250 to 306. And so just a couple things about him. He eventually becomes Caesar Augustus, which is the, the top Caesar. So he's Caesar Augustus from 305 to 306. And he identifies not only with uh, the idea of Sol Invictus, but with Mithras the god and the, the soldiers worshipped him as Mithras the god. So if we look at this coin, this coin obviously minted by um, Constantine Chlorus, you can see here's his face on one side. The inverse of the coin is Sol Invictus, and you can see that it has the, the, the rays of the sun coming out of the head of that on the inverse. So he would be identified with the unconquerable sun. And then uh, let me show you another one. This is an interesting one. Obviously, this side is Constantine Chlorus. On this, the other side, the inverse, Constantine Chlorus, before he became the full emperor, the, the Caesar Augustus, he actually fought a battle going into Great Britain and conquered London. And the inverse of that is the advent of Chlorus into London. So they conquered London. And as I mentioned, the Roman military, they worshipped Mithra, a sun god. They identified the Caesar as Mithras. So the, the inverse of the coin. It says on here that Constantine, I can't even say his name, Constantine Chlorus is the restorer. It says the restorer of light eternal. He's the restorer of eternal light. Now, Mithras had been around for 300 years at this point. Um, and as I said, it's the number one, he became the number one sun god to the Roman military and to the political elite. And he's the number one competitor to Christianity. And if you look at the similarities of Mithras and what the early church, some of the stuff we've taken on, like the Catholic or universal church, some of the similarities are remarkable. They both have the, the head of the Mithras cult is called the Pope, and he wears a mitre, the hat that our popes wear today. Now, this is the whole point. The whole, why am I telling you all this? Mithras' birthday is December 25th. 
So if Constantine Chlorus is Mithras incarnate, then he would celebrate his birthday December 25. Okay? Now, I forgot to put this on your sheet, but if you're interested in this, uh, or for anybody watching the video, if, you're, if you want a really interesting book on coins, because coins were the public announcements, you mint a coin and it tells the world that you're God incarnate. And this is what the Caesars did as part of their cult. So this is a book by Ethelbert Stauffer, Christ in the Caesars. And I can never say this word, but he deals with coins. He's in, he deals with ancient coins. Um, a numismatist, that's what he is. So a very interesting book on Christ and the Caesars, and he does it through the study of coins. So the whole point, you have Chlorus Constantine. He is worshipped as Mithras, whose birthday is on December 25. He then dies, and his son, Constantine the Great, takes over in 306. Now, he's not a Christian yet. So he would have been, he would have been called Mithras incarnate. Constantine would have. And it's under Constantine the Great. The year before he died, the official celebration of December 25 becomes now married with Jesus as the unconquerable son, rather than Mithras. Okay, so this is the point. It's 336 AD. Just to note, that's the date where we finally see December 25. And so scholars know it's not the birthday of, of Jesus. I don't think that's controversial, controversial at all. But just so you know, that's where we get to that date, through Mithras and Constantine Chlorus, and then his son Constantine. So, okay. Now, I put a little line. That's just some, back, some data so that we understand how we got to December 25. But let's now go to the Bible. And the first thing, as I've mentioned a number of times, and I apologize for repeating, the Bible's silent. So it's just not there. And I mentioned about the birthdays, the two birthdays that they do mention. Uh, well, <laughs> it's not very nice what happens on those birthdays. Okay. The majority of scholars place it in the fall. Many, many who study then the holidays will say, yeah, probably around the Festival of Tabernacles. And that's what we're going to look at tonight. And we derive this from two places in the book of Luke. And Luke, you know, I can't wait to talk to Luke in heaven. Because it seems that he's leaving, you know, a trail of breadcrumbs. It's this trail of clues that he's left behind. Now, I don't know, because Luke travels to Israel. He's meeting with people who witnessed Jesus. And he's trying to write, make an account, right? That's what he tells us right at the beginning of his book. I'm creating an account that's accurate. And so he has to be talking to Jews in Israel that are recounting these stories. Well, they're not interested in birthdays at all. So I don't think Luke, I don't know what he's doing. Did he, did he know he was putting a, you know, a trail of breadcrumbs? Or does he look back and say, oh, wow, through the power or through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? I left this trail behind and I didn't know it. Okay, so we'll, that's what we're going to do. So, if you have your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 1. This becomes an anchor point. Uh, it's Luke 1 verse 5, and I'll show, I'll show it to you in a minute. It has to do with the priests, because we learn right away that John the Baptist's father is a priest, and his mother, Elizabeth, is also a descendant of Aaron. 
but we see something about the priestly division of Abijah. And the first thing you'd say is, why is Luke telling us this? Why is he giving us a detail about Abijah? And what is Abijah? And so that's what we, the moment you see a little detail, instead of just going past, because that's a strange word we don't know, stop and you go, what is Abijah? What do I need to know about that? Why is Luke including that in his list of detail? Okay? So we'll talk about priests here in a minute, but let's go to Luke 1.5. And this is uh, Zechariah and his wife, Elizabeth, and they're the story of Elizabeth becoming pregnant with John the Baptist. So verse 5 says this, There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. He had a wife of the daughters of Aaron, so she's from a priestly family as well, and her name was Elizabeth. Now, most of us know at least the broad outline of this story, but we got to go in and look at the details, because what is this, the division of Abijah? So first thing we notice, Zechariah is a priest. That means he's inside the tribe of Levi, but within Levi, he's a descendant of Aaron. And so that makes you a priest, not only a Levite, but a priest. And then Elizabeth is also a descendant of Aaron. Okay? Now, where do we get this? You can keep a finger in Luke, because we're going to come back to it. But I want to show you. It's in 1 Chronicles 24. It's exactly where you were thinking. 1 Chronicles 24, and I'm going to look at a number of verses. The main verse for Abijah is verse 10, but I'll look at a few of them because we need to understand what's going on with these priests and there's what we call divisions or courses or brigades, some Bibles say. Okay. So the first thing is this, they had way too many priests to serve in the temple, in the tabernacle first, and then inside the temple. They had far too many priests. Not a problem for most churches today, but they had too many. And so what they did was they divided the priests up into different divisions, and then each division was going to work for a period of time, okay? So if you look at 1 Chronicles 24, just look at verse 1. It tells us right at the top, these were the divisions of the sons of Aaron. So it's telling you about the priests, okay? Now, if you go down, we're not going to look at the whole list. It's a whole bunch of names that we're not familiar with. Look at verse 10. What they do is they start breaking up the priests into 24 groups. The seventh to Hakaz and the eighth to Abijah. So there's our, this is where we can identify. So in the order of their priestly duties, Zechariah is with Abijah. And then if you look real quick, it, it explains a little bit. Verse 19, this was their ordering in the service, or this was the ordering in their service to come into the house of the Lord. So what's going to happen is this. You have 24 divisions. They're each going to work two weeks a year. 24 times 2 is 48. 
that leaves four weeks that are unaccounted for, right? Well, you have two weeks around the Passover celebration in the spring and two weeks around the Festival of Tabernacles in the fall. That makes 52 weeks of the year. So each, each one of these divisions is going to work a week, and then they have a whole six months off, and then they'll work another week, and then they have, well, I'm sorry, not six months off, because they'll have, they'll have the two big holidays in, in between. Sounds like a cushy job. But they work one week at a time, 24 rotation, then they have a big uh, festival, then they go one week at a time till the next big festival, okay? So how are we going to do this then? Well, the year starts off, the year starts off March to April at the beginning of the year. This will be the first of your year, God tells them in Exodus 12. And the holiday that lands around March to April, at least on our calendar, is Passover. It's this week. So March to April is Passover. You have a two-week where all the priests are working, and now you're going to go in order. One week, two week, three week, and when you get to the eighth week, which is two months, Abijah shows up. They work in the temple for seven days, and then they're done. So from Passover, which we're not really sure exactly where it falls each year, March to April, you go eight weeks out, which puts Zechariah in the temple working sometime around end of May, beginning of June. Okay? Now, you can go back to Luke, because we're done in Chronicles. That's where we get Abijah. But if we go back to Luke, now we have the story of, of John the Baptist. An angel shows up to Zechariah in the temple. He says, uh, Zechariah, Elizabeth is going to have a baby. He's like, Zechariah's like, uh, are you sure? Like, we're both a little bit past our prime. And then the angel says, ah, because you didn't believe me, you're not going to be able to talk. So Zechariah comes out of the temple. He can't talk. Everybody's confused at what happened. Looks like he saw a ghost. That's, this is what Luke is telling us. But it's sometime around end of May, beginning of June, maybe even into the middle of June. We don't know. But right after he's got one week at the temple, the angel just told him he's going to have a baby. He goes straight home. Okay? Or at least the text indicates he would be going straight home. So we can get a sense of what time of year does Elizabeth become pregnant. Okay, so number five. Look down, uh, and then you really have to watch what Luke is doing here because he starts laying out a timeline, right? So if we know the time that Elizabeth becomes pregnant, well, then the series of clues starts to flow outwards, and we can figure out then from that date when John the Baptist was born and when Jesus was born. Okay, so look at Luke chapter 1 again, verse 24. So this is after Zechariah is done with his time at the temple. The town that Elizabeth and um, he were living in is not too far from Jerusalem, so he makes it home pretty quickly. It had to be a little bit strange for Elizabeth, right? Her husband can't talk, but he suddenly is excited, you know, they need to make a baby. So that was probably a little strange. But look at verse 24. So it says, 
after these days, now what are these days? Well, that's Zechariah's service. After these days, Elizabeth, his wife, conceived. Some Bibles say soon after she conceived. It's not, the, it's not a huge period of time between when he was done and the time she conceives. Okay? Then Luke gives us this clue. She hid herself for five months. Now, why does he tell us that? He suddenly starts giving us time frame. She becomes pregnant, then hides herself for five months. Why mention the five months? He doesn't need to, he could leave that detail out and we'd be okay with it. Okay, this is what Luke's doing. So let's look at Elizabeth's pregnancy then. Assume for a minute that if she's pregnant sometime around the end of June, at least to the beginning of July, let's say at least by July 1st, right? Then that would mean for five months right here, July, August, September, October, November, she's secluded. Okay? Then, and this is number seven on your sheet, because, or what number am I on? Yeah, number seven on the back page. We say, okay, what about Mary's pregnancy then? Okay, well, look at Look at uh, Luke one twenty six, two verses down from our last verse. Now the angel is going to show up to Mary. So Luke's, uh, or I'm, yeah, Luke one verse twenty six. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. Now, verse twenty six. Now, in the sixth month, some translations say in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. That's helping the reader understand the fuller context. Because Luke says she went into seclusion for, for five months. Then in the sixth month, so the very next month, Mary has an angel show up. Okay? Now, if you don't, if you want to be sure about this, look down at Luke 1 36. Look at verse 36. The angel is now talking to Mary. He says, and look, Elizabeth, your relative, she's also conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month with her. Oh. Well, now we can actually put this to a calendar, right? So we go back to Elizabeth's pregnancy. She's in seclusion for five months. Then Mary meets the angel in the sixth month, and Mary becomes pregnant. So when did Mary become pregnant? December. Or end of December, maybe the beginning of January? Okay. Can Jesus have been born December 25 if Mary's conceiving in December? No. So there's, right off the bat, we know, clearly. Now, this is something cool, by the way. Assuming that Elizabeth is pregnant by the 1st of July, and we go nine months out, that means that John the Baptist is born sometime around the end of March, beginning of April. What holiday is at the end of March, beginning of April? Right now, the Passover. So the Passover occurs. Now, this is really cool, because if you've ever been to a Passover Seder, the Jewish people are anticipating that Elijah will show up again at a Passover. 
Now, wouldn't it be just like God if John the Baptist, who's Elijah come again, arrived on Passover? That would be just like God to do something like that. Here he is, right? And the Jewish people are expecting Elijah. Okay, so just right there, you can see Mary's clearly um, pregnant sometime whenever in December. Let's call it end of December going into January. So let's look at Mary's pregnancy then. So we'd say, ah, she gets pregnant somewhere around end of December, maybe the beginning of January, whatever that is. And you say, ah, what's nine months later? Well, you're in September. Jesus' birth, sometime around the end of September. What holiday happens around the end of September? Festival of Tabernacles. So now you've got at least some anchor points that we can say, ah, I can see where, where Luke is going with this. Why does he keep repeating the time frames? Well, it helps us understand what's going on, okay? So Jesus' birth, this is what we need to look at. You look at that Abijah in June. Now, just in case you're wondering, right, let's say, let's say the whole thing was Abijah serving in December, because it's six months later, in his second week of service. Well, then you just flip everything, and you'd say, oh, well, Jesus would be born in pa on Passover, and John would be born on, because they're, it's exactly six months apart. So if it was the other Abijah time of service, then Jesus would be born on Passover, as some people think, and John the Baptist at Tabernacles. But there's a big problem, and that's going to be the second thing we look at. And the big problem is the shepherds in the fields. They're not in the fields during March to April. So the shepherds in the field is really going to put it in the fall. Okay, so if we know Abijah, if we know Abijah is serving in June, if we know that Elizabeth's pregnancy, and then, and then in the six-month mark, which is December, you get Mary's pregnancy, now that puts it somewhere around uh, tabernacles. All right, so that's how we can at least calculate with, obviously, it's not completely accurate, but it gets you in the, in the ballpark. Now, the second clue, and this is a lot of scholars have pointed to this over the years, is that Luke tells us there are shepherds living in the field. So turn to Luke 2, verse 8. Of course, we all know this one because of our Christmas celebration. But what we've done is we've abstracted the idea away from the land, from the culture. And then we often interpret it through our own lens of Western Christianity uh, as to, to what's going on. What does this mean? Okay, so verse 8, Luke 2, verse 8, there were shepherds in the same country, and the same country is Bethlehem. There are shepherds around Bethlehem. They're staying in the fields, or they're living in the fields, and they're keeping watch by night over their flock. So what does this mean? What does it mean that the shepherds were staying or lodging in the fields? And so that's where we need to know something about Israel, something about the geography, the culture, the, the culture between the farmers and the shepherds, okay? So, uh, let's go. Hopefully, I was trying to find a really, I was trying to find a good map, and this was tough. But hopefully, this will, you'll be able to see what I'm talking about. This is a, a relief map of Israel, and Jerusalem is right in the yellow part. Now, the the green is a lower elevation, the yellow is a higher, and you'll notice there's a ridge line. There's a ridge line right here in the center. Where all of that higher elevation is, Jerusalem is listed there as the more northern city, Hebron to the south. 
we go from sea level over here up to about 2,700 feet around Jerusalem, and then you get a decline or a very steep decline 1,400 feet below sea level in the Dead Sea. Now, for those of you living in San Diego, or if you're familiar with San Diego, this is San Diego, right? You go from the Pacific Ocean at sea level to Julian, which is a little bit higher, I think 4,000 feet, and then it drops off very steeply into Borrega Springs and the Salton Sea, which is below sea level. You have the exact same weather. And so where does the rain in San Diego end? Well, it all stops right about where Julian is. You go a, a half a mile towards Borrego, and there's no more rain any longer. You're in, you're in the desert. Okay, and the rainfall in San Diego is just like Jerusalem. So it's very helpful if you happen to live in San Diego, because you can envision what this looks like. So if we um, clear this map and then say, okay, the farms then, all the Jews lived on top of that ridgeline, and the farms are in a, that very narrow band. The western side is too steep. The eastern side turns into the desert. And so the farming all takes place in that very narrow band. And the shepherds and their sheep live in the wilderness, which is right next to it. I'll show you a picture in a second. As you go towards the Dead Sea, it becomes a barren landscape. That's the wilderness. And that's where the shepherds live with their sheep. So here's a picture. This is, um, this is right near Bethlehem, and it's right on the edge. It's like right where the fields end. So if you look in the picture, the nearby, you have fields. You can see the, the, this is in uh, January, so the, the fields had been plowed. They're, getting, they're, they're likely planted. The barley will be up by uh, end of March to April, but you can tell there's farm, farming fields right there. Then you have almost a dividing line. I'll put this white line on there. It's almost a dividing line. Everything on top of the picture looks barren wasteland. That's the wilderness. In fact, if you could look closely at this picture, you can see the Dead Sea in the background and Jordan on the other side. So the wilderness bumps right up against the fields. Okay? And so at a certain time of year, the shepherds are going to come out of the wilderness and they're going to go into the fields. Now, they're not going to do that when there's actual barley or wheat. They do it after the harvest, okay? And I'll show you, let me show you another picture. Um, this one is the ancient city of Gibeon. This is in the, the area, it's called the, the area where Benjamin was. It's a huge plateau. It's the Benjamin Plateau. And so that, that big mound of rock in the middle, that's the ancient town of Gibeon that's in the book of Judges. And you can see around it, it's rocky, but around all of the rocky areas, you have farming fields. So this is fields. Now, if you go just a couple miles to the east towards the Dead Sea, everything suddenly changes and looks like this. And now you're in the wilderness. Now, you could, this, again, was in January, so the rain had brought up some grass there. And the moment you drop down into that wilderness, you start seeing scenes like this. Because those are the Bedouin shepherds. They're not up in the fields. They're down in the wilderness. If you take those sheep into a field and there's barley or wheat, they'll kill the sheep. Or the goat. Okay? So very important. It's, it's like a stark dividing line. All right, let me go back. I'll show you one more. This is near Bethlehem. 
This is called the Herodium. This was a Herod's palace near Bethlehem. He moved a mountain to make a palace. We don't have time for that tonight. But if you climb up on that uh, Herodian, this is a picture to the west. That's Bethlehem in the background. You can see that there's all farm fields around there. So there, people are growing crops. You go to the other side, and that's what this picture was. And now you can see the wilderness in the background. Bumps right up against that. So what happens is the harvest, the barley harvest is first. That's in April to May. The wheat comes next. That's May, June, and into July. By the end of July, the shepherds come out of the wilderness and into the fields because all of the wheat has been harvested and the farmers want the, shep want the sheep and the goats to eat up any leftover stalks and everything else. Then the goats and the sheep, they leave a deposit of fertilizer behind, helps everybody out, helps the farmer, helps the shepherd. Between August and October, they're in the fields. And then by, by the end of October, when the rains begin, they're out of the fields and back down into the wilderness. So if the text says that there were shepherds living in the fields, then we know it's between August and October. And it would be no other time of the year because they're, well, you wouldn't, you don't have them up there because, again, you don't want to, you don't want to have your shepherd bring up your, the goats into a field that has wheat in it. Um, okay, so hopefully that makes sense. That's how we know it's in the fall because that's the only time of year they're there. But you have to know that land and you have to know the cycle of the farmers. So here's what we'll end with. God is coordinated. Our brains can't figure out how coordinated God is, right? And I think of it this way. He has this holiday system that has amazing symbolism for the plan of redemption. And it would make total sense to me then that God would have the most important person in that plan of redemption, Jesus, the eldest son, who's going to come redeem the whole world, that he's part of that, right? So, for instance, would it be just like God that at the end of December, that latter half of December, you have the holiday of Hanukkah? That's already happening around Jesus. The Hanukkah is the festival of lights. You're celebrating the light. We'll talk about that in two weeks. Uh, when Bonnie and I were there a few years ago for Hanukkah, and it was, it went all the way up to New Year's Day, or uh, yeah, New Year's Eve was the last night of Hanukkah. So would it be cool if Mary conceived the light of the world during the Festival of Lights? Would that make sense in God's cosmos that she conceives during that festival? And then nine months later, you have tabernacles, and we went over this last week. Would it make sense that the light of the world was born during a festival that you're celebrating light? Or that Jesus as the living water would be born during the festival that celebrates living water. Or more important, the festival where the people are crying out, Hoshana, save now. God says, okay, I'll send my salvation. Jesus, and that's what his name means, God's salvation. So that would make sense. And then finally, for the Passover, that John the Baptist is Elijah come again. And for 2,000 years, every Jewish Passover, leaves a space for Elijah, and they go look outside to see if Elijah's at the door. Perhaps Elijah did come back on a Passover as John the Baptist. So I think if we can see, if we have eyes to see how coordinated God is, these holidays, they have a special meaning. So here's the steps, right? A, start with Abijah. Once we know that, we start doing the math and counting down. 
Then you can say, ah, Elizabeth got pregnant sometime around end of June, beginning of July. Six months later, Mary gets pregnant. End of December to September. And then the, what really nails everything down as being in the fall is that there were shepherds living in the fields. And there you have some time. Now, obviously, we don't know. But again, I think to me, so much of it makes sense when we can see it. If we don't know the holidays, we don't know the symbolism of the holidays, then we can easily miss something. So, okay, hopefully, uh, hopefully I was able to walk you through that sufficiently enough. Uh, it does take a little bit of, you know, you got to write it down maybe and go back and listen to it again and say, oh yeah, I can see that and do a little studying on Abijah or whatever. But this is the, for me and everything I've ever read about his birthday, it's the one that makes the most sense in the context of first century Israel. <laughs>